Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to Drunk Book Club, where we read things you might have heard of, but didn't bother to read. My name is Vry, and with me, as always, is Dorothy. Hi! And we actually have a special episode for you. This is our first Patreon commission. If you aren't aware, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash treasures. At a certain tier, uh, folks are able to pick a book for us to do an episode about. It's actually our highest cost tier because this is our most expensive type of episode. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are a lot of material costs for this type of episode. So I'd like to personally thank Anil for deciding to back us for this. It, it really warms our hearts to get to do it. And honestly, you know, good pick. Uh, what we're doing is a book we've actually mentioned on the podcast before. It is 1998's uh, The the Lazarus Heart, which is a novel in the, the Crow spinoff books of the, you know, the film with Brandon Lee. The Comics by James O'Barr. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, and it is written by uh, Billy Martin, also known as Poppy Z. Bright, which is his professional name. If you are new to the podcast or just caught here because you were searching up crow things on Google, he is also the author of vampire novel Lost Souls, which we covered a couple months back. You don't have to listen to that episode. We'll give you the basics on who uh, Martin is here. But, you know, it'd be, you might want to. I'm pretty proud of that episode. His oeuvre. His <laughs> I don't think we're qual- qualified to talk about his oeuvre. <laughs> Although apparently we are two steps removed from the man. I was alarmed to find that out. Apparently we know somebody who knows somebody. Wild and slightly I always, alarming. I always really forget how small the world is and that authors are human people too. It's just so strange to think of just hanging out with somebody who was such a pivotal point. And someone who's wor- who a work you're talking about that was influential decades ago. Yeah. So like I said, if you hadn't caught our last episode, the Cliff Notes version is that Billy Martin, who uh, came out in the early to mid 2000s as a trans man, was a very influential vampire and gothic novelist in the throughout well, the 90s. I would characterize him more as a goth novelist than a gothic novelist. Yeah, that's good distinction. Yeah, because he specifically wrote a lot of novels in the goth subculture. Because Poppy Z. Bright was his pen name and not his birth name, he has continued to use that brand uh, even after transitioning. Although I believe his Patreon for his Stephen King essay collection is under his real name. I think so, but but he uses them fairly interchangeably. Mm -hmm. However, we will generally be using the name Billy Martin because that's his name. The book we covered was Lost Souls last time, uh, which is... Very southern vam- southern gothic vampires talking about, uh, you know, talking back to Anne Rice, but in a much more uh, fleshy kind of way. Yeah, um, and y- you can definitely see sort of shades of Lost Boys and Near Dark sort of punk vampire influences in there. Mm-hmm. Very deliberately anti- uh, Anti-bourgeoisie. Yeah, that's just, a good... Just sort of violating the aesthetics of vampirism. Mm-hmm. The uh, the wealth tourism that was inherent in that 80s vampirism. And also it has a lot in common with um, sort of transgressive fiction in the style of Burgess or Polanyuk. Just a lot of gore and a lot of tree as set dressing. 
Yeah, I mentioned uh, that he's currently writing a set of essays on Stephen King. Keep that one in your pocket. Uh, the man is not ashamed that he was uh, of how very, very influenced by Stephen King he is. And as somebody else who read a lot of the man at his formative age, I see you, sir. In the 2000s, Martin kind of started transitioning out of doing goth works and into sort of mis- uh, cozy mysteries. Um, the dark comedic mysteries set in the New Orleans restaurant scene. Hmm. I think his husband, his long-term partner, was a chef. Right. He, he knows the, the layout, the landscape. And I don't know if they technically qualify as cozy mysteries, but just the conceit of mysteries centered around a particular profession with clues embedded therein. And a couple. And subculture and couples and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, uh, gay restaurant scene mysteries, which is entertaining as a concept. I haven't read any of them yet, and I really should. Yeah, no, like it's it's cute, though. So this is kind of him on the outside of right on the cusp of the two periods of his work when he was writing Lazarus Heart, which is now we have another Crow novel out on our bookcase, but we haven't read it. Yeah. That one's like a historical fiction set in the mysterious Orient. Big yike, big yike, but we Uh found it at Uh the secondhand bookstore. We did. We did. We did. So we can't say for sure exactly. We haven't, or rather, we haven't fact-checked how exacting the format requirements are on Crow novels, but uh, we can say... <laughs> this definitely conforms to a formula. <laughs> if you have seen the movie, which you should, honestly, we did an episode about it, like, at the beginning of this podcast. Don't listen to it. It's un- unlistenable. But do watch The Crow, because it's a very good movie. And this book features... Most of the basic structural similarities there, you have somebody who uh, died a violent death and who has come back to life to avenge the death specifically of their murdered partner. They have been brought back to death. Nope. They've been brought back to life by a magical crow uh, and they cannot die until they exact their revenge. There is a cop character who has fallen from grace in some way. There is a murderer who is still out there. Uh, and nominally, there is a mystery to work your way up, you know, through the goons of the person who was responsible for the murder. And also, there is the question of some larger societal uh, oppressive force at work. And in the case of this one, um, this is set in... New Orleans, which is a very present atmospheric location for a lot of authors, but especially for Bright, who has centered a lot of his work around New Orleans. And one of the reasons he retired uh, temporarily from writing was from the repercussions of Hurricane Katrina. That being said... That's right. Before we go any further, we need to talk about what Dorothy has made us to drink this week. Yes. And uh, this time I thought I would go with a New Orleans old standard, the absinthe frappe. We are lightly buzzed off of a drink of absinthe, anisette, rich simple syrup, which is double strength, twice the sugar to half the water, soda water, and uh, crushed mint. 
Now, you can also uh, get away with doing a mint syrup, either one purchased at the store or one you make yourself. It's really easy. But that cuts down on the effort if you just put the mint right into the rich, simple syrup. So you would say that uh, store-bought is fine? Store-bought is fine. The Barefoot Contest is right there. To peek behind the curtain, this <laughs> this episode was a little bit cursed. And by that, I mean that I'm terrible with liquor. <laughs> because the first time we tried to record this, Dorothy made me a Sazerac. I love a Sazerac. You love a Sazerac, too. Yeah, no, I very much enjoyed the taste of the Sazerac, and then I, and then what happened that night? You literally had half a Sazerac and were ready to pass out. Yeah, and then I had a lovely time drunkenly playing near Automata for the rest of the evening, and we did not record for multiple hours. Uh-huh. I'm amazed you managed to finish the plot line. <laughs> In fairness, it was Route B. You're massively <laughs> overpowered in Route B. But a Sazerac is an extremely strong cocktail. Like, mm-hmm. no joke. It's a liquor-heavy cocktail using hey, rye. Patrons who want to have Dorothy's recipes in writing uh, can join us for $2 a month on Patreon, where I'm sure she would happily include her Sazerac recipe. Well, the sad thing about the Sazerac recipe is there's no really good non-alcoholic equivalent. Whereas for the absinthe frappe, I can totally provide you a non-alcoholic version of it right there in our recipe book. If you're somebody who is sensitive to alcohol, be careful with this stuff. They are, uh, even the absinthe frappe, although it's very nice and sort of licorice now we are using cheap absinthe. And Dorothy knows from absinthe. I do. Like, the one liquor she's really picky about, because she's goth as fuck. I mean, I'm picky about a few liquors, but especially absinthe. Um, the absinthe frappe and the Sazerac are both traditional New Orleans cocktails. They're both cocktails that originated there in the bartending scene. New Orleans had a really vibrant and intense bartending scene, especially a cocktail scene, resulting in a lot of standards for the U.S. A lot of the drinks there focused on a very herbal, heavy flavor profile with, um, with components of rye, absinthe, and herbed bitters. Very medicinal flavor profile, but... That's my favorite kind of drink, so. And I don't know if it's just the websites you were looking at and, like, their priorities, or if it's to do with the liquor scene at the time, but a lot of them were quite strong. Early cocktails tended to often hew to a martini or old-fashioned structure, where the liquor was the backbone of the drink rather than the mixer. Modern drinks tend towards more of a sort of two-thirds, one-thirds of mixer-to-alcohol ratio. Which is what the absinthe frappe is more like. Consequently, I'm still sitting upright. Yeah, and that's one of the things that makes it a more accessible drink. But, I mean, for liquor connoisseurs, there are are some good things on those lists we found. (laughs) Except for that curdled brain shit. That was just on a a random goth cocktails list. (laughs) You're not going to saddle New Orleans with that one? No. Fair enough. Also... Um, I don't drink brain hemorrhages because I once got food poisoning the same day as I drank a brain hemorrhage, and it's not the drink's fault, but I have a bad association. It was Halloween, too. Why should I be cursed with such a thing on Halloween? I'm goth. I should be protected. There are rules. It's unfair. One of the several things that makes this book a little bit hard to read in hindsight, and there are several, not least the fact that it's 20 years old now, and (laughs) uh, parts of it have age... (laughs) is the fact that a central plot point is a metaphorical and literal tropical storm blasting through New Orleans and 
devastating the city. Yeah, and um, and the need to evacuate. And I feel like it's meant to parallel Devil's Night in Detroit in the Crow the film. original. Mm-hmm. But it, it hits a little different now. Speaking of which, uh, we should probably be up front with the trigger warnings. It's trigger warning time. Oh, so many trigger warnings. Yeah, so. Wow, that was really morning hosty. I, I feel like somebody should be hitting a soundboard with like, oh, boom, boom, But no, like trigger warnings for real. Again, Bright is not only playing in goth horror, but specifically a time period that was very much into shock, uh, shock goth horror. I mean, and he did situation himself with like transgressive fiction. Yes, so we are dealing with both, uh, so there is the whole tropical storm issue, there is police violence. Racism. So much racism. Both overt and just inherent to the narrative. Mm hmm. There is, uh, transphobia, trans panic defense, uh, homophobic violence, incest, sexual assault, carceral violence, gore, but like that. Like, <laughs> come secondary on. at this point. Like, come on. Um, I'm just trying to tag my pomegranates. <laughs> There's sort of some implicit. There's not really pedophilia in this one, but there is. I, I, isn't the one kid like 14 or something? Michelle. That's right. Um, yeah, there, there is. Um, there is. Well, I mean, underage sex work, underage sex work, and murder of sex workers, and violence against sex workers, totally separate from the murder of sex workers, and internalized homophobia misogyny so much specifically lesbian centered misogyny some kind of true scummy shit periods quick i still have questions about the mechanics of that and just internalized homophobia so much Mm -hmm. and internalized transphobia and just ableism in general because of the mental illness stuff right yeah there's a lot of madness talk um and I would like to stress that we are not saying that Martin is a bad person for writing this. I fully believe there are reasons why he writes the way he does. But in 1998, he wrote some fucked up shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is one of those books that is both, okay, this was transgressive in an interesting way for the time, and it has just aged badly with where we're at now. And there are also parts where, like, this was fucked up at the time, and you didn't, ex- and you hadn't examined some some stuff you had in you. Right. There's just some stuff that is inherently troubling. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so yeah, just basically all the trigger warnings. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. How to begin summarizing this book because it doesn't actually start until halfway through. I found that so frustrating, personally. It, I mean, it's very in keeping with his style, and I have to wonder if there was a certain thing on the editor's part where, like, where they wanted to preserve, we got, we got Poppy Z. Bright to write a novel for us, and we want people to come in because they're reading a Poppy Z. Bright novel. Well, I mean, when I look at the, you know, additional titles of the series page, it looks like they only had two other books published so far as Crow imprints, and one by David Bischoff and one by Chet Williamson. Very dude-heavy imprint. Extremely. Which makes sense because as much as I love The Crow, it is an extremely dude-centric series. And it's very odd because I feel like that's a common trait with a lot of the crow spinoffs that it didn't bother me with the crow but it's become baked in to spinoffs and sequels 
maybe we'll report back when we read that other book. I don't know that it deserves a whole episode, but you know, maybe a bonus or mm. something. But I, I, I think that a lot of this book is kind of what I expected the crow, the movie to be. Whereas the film has this unexpected sort of sweetness uh, and, and gentleness between specifically Eric and Sarah that becomes like the, and, and Shelly too. Like uh-huh. there's hardly any Shelly in it. And yet, and, and yet you truly feel like they loved each other, even though she is like this, this dead fridged girlfriend who drives the plot. I feel like I've watched all the Crow sequels. I made that mistake in my life. I watched the one with David Boreanaz. I watched the one with the dude from White Collar. And none of them have managed to capture the same magic around Eric Draven's experience as portrayed by Brandon Lee. To me, truly sort of the essence of the goth. Mm -hmm. Not the gothic, though it is, but also the goth. Just the romanticization of the moments that exist in life before death. And the idea of these things continuing after death. And that there's value to that. And the movie is sort of inexorably touched by the real life tragedy of Lee's death on set. But I don't, I don't think that's all of it. I don't think that's what makes it good. Well, I think also there's the fact that it's t- inexorably touched by Obar's experience in writing The Crow. Because mm-hmm. James Obar, the original author of The Crow comic, was writing it as sort of a synthesis of his experience of his fiance's premature death before they, they managed to marry in a car accident. Plus the combination of a um, a news story that he read about a young couple who were murdered in the street because while being mugged, they refused to surrender a sterling silver, you know, $20 engagement ring. And he was sort of working through his experiences of loss and his idea that love can and should be eternal and specifically specifically the idea of working through the pain and living through the pain and how pain can be a driving force that can be harnessed and it's not necessarily healthy but it can keep you alive and i think martin picks up on some of those elements in this book it certainly captures that same fulcrum of ah sir you are working through some shit yeah (laughs) it it doesn't have the same potent it's much better than any of the crow film sequels Mm -hmm. Which all just sort of um, tap along the same sequence of events of some dude's pissed that somebody killed him and somebody else. Martin has something to say with this book. I, I truly felt like he had ideas that he wanted to explore and he wanted to use the crow as as this vehicle to talk about, you know, this chance for for the underprivileged to strike back against their oppressors and, and yeah, it all kind of goes like, wonky. Yeah, he wants to talk about like judicial reform and all cops are bastards, but it, that never really goes anywhere. But in sort of systemic violence against queer people. It's weird though, because I don't feel like it's resolved at all. There's no indication that anything will ever get better. There's a really, there, there's all these nebulous cool themes. There's one really excellent image at the end. And then there's just a bunch of stuff in the middle. And also just wholesale plundering of the Maplethorpe estate. <laughs> at least, at least he name drops him. Well, he does, which is audacity. 
So our main character is not Eric Draven. It's Jared Poe, which I can't can't get mad at because this is the tradition we're working in. No, no. Legally, you're required to give up the crow pun. That's funny. (laughs) I hate Jared. No, Jared sucks is the problem. Jared is a photographer who was wrongfully convicted for the murder of his boyfriend, Benjamin. And he was sent to prison, he was stabbed in prison, and now he has been roused from the grave by a crow to get revenge on the murderer. But the only problem is, gosh darn it, he doesn't know who the murderer is. And there's a whole lot of stuff. I feel like we should just give sort of a potted version of the plot before we get into the stuff, maybe? Because it's so all over the place? Right, because the the plot, as such, sounds fine. Well, and also it takes so many digressions that I feel like if we were trying to go to go over it beat by beat, we'd get lost even more quickly than we, we would get lost do. in the sauce. Uh huh. And I'm pretty soft already. Jared comes back and in does his it. ridiculous fucking tomb with a naked bound man atop it, which is just tasteless given what he was convicted for. Mm-hmm. He was convicted of tying his boyfriend up and murdering him. Some Mishima vibes in here. Hey, a bit, a bit, a bit. He hauls his ass out of the grave and goes to find Benny's twin sister who lived with them. Uh, Identical twin sister. Lucrece is the best character in this work. Mm-hmm. Not unlike Anne in Lost Souls. I don't feel like she's intended to be. I don't know. She's a triumphant I mean, character, but she's also very weirdly situated. She is the the moral center of the book, but also Jared constantly shits on her. And we are also supposed to like Jared, I think, in a sad, pathetic sort of way. I don't. Yeah. Lucrece is the one who actually gets things done. She's so good. While she's surrounded by all of these cis gay dudes who uh, are sort of thwarted and beaten down by the system. But also, I think we're supposed to like them. And it's very, very odd. Odd positioning, yeah. Lucrece is, is Benny's twin sister. And yes, she is named after... Lucrece Borgia. Why would you ask? Yeah. Um, so they're identical twins. She's trans. And this is an important plot point. Mm-hmm. Because Benny was not in fact murdered by his boyfriend, Jared. It was by murdered by the man with the name of Rivers. It's almost clever. Very, very. And then it frustrates me because it's not river related at all. It's lightning. Yeah. So there is a serial killer going around who is a chaser afraid of his own attraction to trans people and so he also believes that there is a trans mafia out there controlling the governments and and also it's aliens and also they're out to fight him specifically their their greatest nemesis because he's deeply mentally ill and also was struck by lightning as a child and somehow forgot his name and is incapable of retaining it so he just names himself after Rivers, like Jordan or Hudson. Jared goes about murdering, the ju- doing some Edmond Dante shit. He murders the cop who arrested him and the judge who sentenced him. And none of this gets him any closer to the actual serial killer. And so meanwhile, serial killer Jordan guy is murdering tr- trans sex workers day in and day out. And... At the same time in the third plot line, there is a cop named Frank. Frank. Frank is a gay cop who is deeply, deeply, deeply self-loathing because that is the only way he has been able to get by on 
the incredibly homophobic force is by burying himself in the mask and and actively being culpable in acts of violent transphobia and homophobia because he's sad yeah one time he used to just go along with the jokes and then one time he went to a gruesome crime scene where his partner almost died and no backup came for them because she was an out lesbian and knowing that scared him so bad that he like tripled down on his homophobia and he's been terrible and an alcoholic ever since i'm still confused as to how they had they managed to cover her locker in bloody tampons like what are the odds in a mid to late 90s new orleans precinct that there were that many homophobic women on the rag at that exact moment when somebody got shot you know, just getting a lot of nosebleeds. Like, will, like willing to to offer that up. Truly the greatest plot hole in this entire novel. Definitely. The biggest one. <laughs> also, she was black. Because how can we triple down on her oppression? This book is not good at race. <laughs> uh, no. So, by the way, Frank was not involved in the in the case uh, around Benny's murder or Jared's conviction. He's just hanging out in the back being self-loathing until they check out the latest crime scene from the serial killer guy. And he's like, wait a minute, I don't think this is right. This looks similar to that other crime. And he's the only one who thinks this. And so Jared is able to follow this guy who w- wandered onto the crime scene in order to come upon the serial killer. Where they both fuck up and die. Yeah. But also the serial killer has kidnapped Lucrece and killed her. And so Jared is despairing and he goes- And then Lucrece deals with the whole problem. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jared dies and Lucrece is like, oh, for fuck's sake. And she becomes the crow and it is legitimately great. It's like the best scene in the whole book and I really hate what had to happen in order to arrive at that scene. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I said that multiple times to Vry because I finished the book first. I was like, I really like this bit and I really, really loathe the journey it took to get here. Mm -hmm. And then, so after she takes care of it, they go off to the afterlife and Frank is dead. presumably he's fucking Benny again. Again, I guess. Well, now she might be fucking Benny too because this book throws an incest for no good goddamn reason. Funnily enough, that's what makes me angriest about this book, is the random incest. It's so unnecessary. Because it it feels like, at points, the incest is there because this is trans... Because this is transphobic? Not not even that, just, like, because because of his history in transgressive literature, where you, you've put all the dirty, shameful kinksters together, and, it, and then I flash back to early 2000s internet... Where people are talking about their gay ships and their twin cest. Like, well, if you think that... that Well, that they can't breed, so it's okay. And if you think that it, homophobia is wrong, then why is it so different to discriminate these two? It's a social construct, says, uh, says Shinigami XXX on Live Journal. As they write their, their Hidachin cest. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you know that Sashi Maru has kids? I would have sooner he fucked his brother than that girl. Don't worry, that that fandom exists too. Yes, I know. You know how I know? Because one time, one time Hot Topic sold a t-shirt that had Inuyasha and Sashomaru on it, and in, packed in it was somebody's, like, thinly veiled incest poem. Wow. Good job, Hot Topic. 
This is Hot Topic Literature. It really is. Let's start with Frank. Because Frank frustrates me, because I feel like his character is the closest to working. Which is frustrating in and of itself. During the first few chapters, I kind of expected him to be a version of Al Pacino in Cruising, except functional. Right. Um, he's... He starts out as, like, being presented as, like, the Ernie Hudson character, which is clearly what, like, the editorial mandate was. This book partly fascinates me because it's a creative author doing hack work. Not saying that this work is hacky, but specifically, like, the, the technical term. Right. They're doing work to contract. Right. Castle of Cagliostro is technically hack work. Right. Where there's an editorial mandate to conform to certain expectations. And in a lot of ways, those expectations shine through in this one. Mm -hmm. Because you can see where Bright is pushing against and rupturing them. And that's one of the things that makes good literature is those violations of expectations. But also, there are places where it really does not work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Frank's opening scene is where is he assaults a hustler. While yeah. he's, uh, this, this teenage sex worker. Yeah, he, uh, Tries to hold, like, tries to hold him up after a blowjob, and he beats the shit out of the kid. And it's really weird, because there's this lengthy sort of digression into Frank's whole history of, like, fetishizing the cop via cop dramas on television as an ideal of masculinity and homosocial bonding. It's very Kate... It's very sedgwick but... At the same time, it leans so hard into empathizing with him that I feel that it's almost overdetermined that mm -hmm. the kid tries to hold him up. Yeah, there's no, like, like, there, like, it doesn't really make sense for the kid to try to hold him up for being a cop, except in order to give this sort of morsel of justification for his attack on the kid. Yeah, it's, it's very weird because a lot of Bright's work kind of centers on this kind of dynamic where, yes, somebody was bad, but also there's bad people on both sides. Right. There's, like, there's this determination to show that corruption is everywhere. Well, and there's this beautiful, beautiful line in his introduction chapter. Like, there was a ballooning sense that he was somehow slipping out of himself. That the man he saw reflected had already consumed the real Frank Gray. And that made me so excited for his character arc. Because I was like, alright, this is going to be about him finally having his come to gay Jesus moment. Where he realizes he can no longer stand by in the face of, of this homophobic systemic violence. And he's going to take a stand, even if it means that he has to throw away this system on which he based his life. Because it's toxic and, and untenable. And I think that's one of the things that really frustrates me about this book is that there is not any survivors. There's no survivor for this experience. Um, the Crow had Sarah as a survivor. She was a witness to both the power of violence and the power of love and the importance of the power of love as a transformative force in a person's life. And the sequel doesn't exist. No. No, I hate that. That sucks. Mm -hmm. But it frustrates me that there's literally no survivor here. 
everyone dies. There, there's nobody existing in it as a light forward for the community in question. I yeah, mean, there's... Frank dies, Lucrèce dies. The shitty old academic guy lives. Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. Right, exactly. bugs the fuck off to Amsterdam. Yeah, there is a... There is... The living character at the end is a professor who... Of ornithology... No, he's a former professor of ornithology who was fucking his students. Right. And, and cruelly kicked out of academia. And it's supposed to be that he was outed and that's what drove him out, but... It sounds more like he was fucking his students. Uh-huh. And it it really muddies the issue. And I know there's, you know, the whole question of do we need our, our queer characters to be moral paragons, but you were fucking your student. And they fired you. Probably also because you were gay. Like, but probably I don't primarily like because you were gay. But also, you were fucking your student and you're presented entirely as a man who fucks possibly underage guys. Mm-hmm. And shows up for one fucking scene. And also, his new boyfriend isn't presented in any kind of humanized way at all. He's just there to be pissy I, when I, Chris wakes them up. I'm honestly not clear whether he took that man out of the flood zone. Same. Like, if you've got to choose between space for uh, a priceless uh, stuffed dodo, which literally doesn't exist in real life, mm-hmm. or the random boy you're fucking, what do you choose? Well, if you're this guy. I mean, there's priceless, and there's a thousand bucks a month. <laughs> Fuck. Honestly, it didn't, even if Frank didn't live, like, it would almost make sense for him to die. Like, he's, he's, Stood by to too much violence. But if Frank doesn't live, Lucrèce doesn't live, and Michelle doesn't live. Michelle should have lived. Or someone like her. Like a hustler like that kid he beat up. Yeah. And and that's what frustrates me. Is that there's no living continuation. I feel like it really misses the point of The Crow. Which is that, yes, The Crow is revenge from beyond the grave. But it provides a way forward for the living. Mm Mm-hmm. It's about improving things for those who live. And Jared just, he, he does kill some people who are involved in institutionalized homophobia, but we're not assured that these people continue. Right. And like, Eric didn't solve the question of, uh, you know, shitty landlords, but he did take out one shitty landlord who will better the lives of a lot of people. I can't see how what Jared did is gonna fix like if anything it will it it will lead to a backlash yeah against his community yeah like there's not a community feeling Mm -hmm. whereas the crow was intensely sort of about the idea of community in detroit i don't know it frustrated me yeah well and you mentioned while you were reading that it's Again, another thing the book seems like it's setting up and then doesn't is the ticking time bomb thing with Michelle. Yeah, so so after Jared comes back and shows up at Lucrèce's home and blames her for the situation, rudely, very rudely, because, because she's into witchcraft. Because you goth bitch, how dare you raise me from the grave? And then he dead names her, assuming A just lot. to be spiteful. Just, just to be mean. Assuring that I would never like him. Uh-huh. It was honestly fuck Benny too, mm-hmm. because Benny is weirdly in to like fucking with her gender and social situations. 
Which, I mean, she... We're not really clear on how okay she is with that. I think she's pretty clearly not okay with that because of the mentions of her sort of reaction to the photographs that made Jared's career. Which we'll get into in a bit because Jared's career in relation to a trans woman's intellectual labor is important. Mm-hmm. But, but Michelle. Um, but Michelle is a character that comes in after a conversation where Jared and uh, and Lucrèce say, probably you're back to, to prevent him from killing again. And then we hard smash into the POV of this young trans sex worker named Michelle. Who's just off the bus. Who is just off the bus, but has made friends with like other girls in the neighborhood. But it's really weird because even though it's in Michelle's POV, the narrative keeps misgendering her because she has not, like, medically transitioned yet. It's very transmetty. Yeah, it's, you know, the speech in Tu Wong Fu, that's kind of how this book treats transness. Also, every trans character uses the feminine form of their mask name. Mm -hmm. There's a mention of one trans masculine character but they were murdered off screen. Mm-hmm. Mostly it is violence against trans girls, you know, but, same old song. But yeah, and, and they all specifically use the feminine form of their masculine name, which is convenient that they all have names that like... Right, that, that feminize easily. Yeah, so she's just off the bus, but she's not that innocent. I'm sorry. I'm hearing that in my head now. Mm-hmm. I mean, the molestation undercurrents in that song are not not there. They're not not. Um, but then the bad guy, the man with the name of the River Jordan, abducts her and tortures her to death. Mm-hmm. And this serves no purpose. And it's-, it's really frustrating because it serves to like get your hopes up that there- maybe she's a ticking time bomb and they're supposed to save her and that's like a driving force. No. No. We are not doing Silence of the Lambs, as it turns out, except for the ways that we are. And it's, uh, her contribution to the plot is that it's her body Frank finds and comes on to, wait a minute. Even though dude already killed one person that night. Mm-hmm. So she literally serves no narrative purpose. And I hate it. It sucks. Like for, for the first time he was, introduced i was almost kind of impressed with serial killer riverman because i i think martin is unusually good at dropping the the reader into a paranoid mindset like an intense an intensely focused delusion in a way that doesn't cede to reader comfort or feel the need to explain things to them um or or you know what i mean yeah yeah, and I mean, I generally like that. Like, that's one of my favorite things to write mm-hmm. is that type of intense, specific, sort of determined perspective. Mm-hmm. But it's not great what's happening. Right. It 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 goes on. T- I was impressed with it at first, and I think sparingly it could have been really effective in terms of portraying this kind of character who... Before it slips into the, you know, 
I'm just attracted to those person, which is uncannily close to, ah, the real homophobe was in, had internalized homophobia all Go along. On. But like when it starts out, it is very frightening in terms of that his whole motivating factor is I can tell who they are. And that that's like such an embedded trans fear is like, oh, God, they're going to know. Yeah. I, I am deeply amused by the concept of a transphobe who never, never even cottoned onto the idea of being homophobic until he accidentally killed a gay guy. It's like, wow. like, wow. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Explain to me. He gets all the way to killing Frank and he's like, well. He killed Benny and was like, well. They do have... They do have sex with other men, and I guess that's also bad. That's also a violation of gender, but, like, what? It's it's so like, grimly idiotic that it's kind of horribly funny. <laughs> it's like, really? It never occurred to you to be homophobic before? Like, you are, but it, it just never popped into your head. Yeah. <laughs> well, whilst engaging in a crime spree, murdering the hell out of... Yep. <laughs> but yeah, that, the ways in which he is almost startlingly normalized in his, and yet extremely delusional early on are very uh, compelling. Yeah, but he frustrates me because it feels like it's sort of a kitchen sink delusion. Mm-hmm. Because he thinks it's aliens and the gay mafia and... And there's transmitters and everything, and I only eat canned food because they put it in, put it in the water. It's turned into the freaking frogs, okay? Right. And it's frustrating because there's not, like, an organized system to his delusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I understand pervasive delusions that, that, you know, engage with, like, the idea of systemic, powerful, uh, you know, forces, but... It really feels like it operates in whatever way Bright wants for him to be crazy at any given moment. Yeah, kind of. It's one of those things that is a very potent shock and then degrades in effect the longer it goes on because A, those holes start to show and then B, it falls into that that issue of wallowing that we kind of had with Lost Souls where you had the thing where, where there was feels, the thing with the truck driver. It, it feels parodic mm-hmm. of mental illness. But yeah, the thing with the truck driver in Lost Souls was uncomfortable because it was like, again, okay, we get it. You're saying there's hypocrisy here. Mm -hmm. And it starts out so, so scary. And then it's just like, oh, well, this is a tired thing. And I'm tired now. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, but so Michelle is a waste. And it's sad. It's sad because I was invested in that character. Mm Mm-hmm. And I know I was supposed to be invested in that character, but I feel like it was a cheat. Yeah, it feels to like... To do that to me, like, mm-hmm. as the reader. And I feel like that's a lot of my problem with this book, is that, right, that Martin keeps wasting my investment. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels the way Polynuk feels as a writer, where you shouldn't get invested because all they're going to do is smash it on the ground. Mm-hmm. And it works the first few times, and then you start to get annoyed, and then you get numb. And then you get jaded, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's just, like, life, man. Can we talk about twins? Yeah, let's talk about twins and Jared's baby. terrible, terrible photography career. Let's talk about twins, baby. <laughs> yeah, so, uh... I can't find the... I can't, I've can't. i been flipping through, and I can't find the passage where Lucrèche was 
actively traumatized by Jared's photography projects. The situation with Lucrece's gender makes me super uncomfortable because it feels like a lot of the gratification that Jared gets comes from Lucrece's degradation and discomfort and, and specifically triggering her, even though he's ostensibly not in a relationship with her. So there's a description of photographs taken of Lucretia and Benny and photos of Benny in like femme clothing, melding their faces and all that shit. Yeah. These were the centerpieces in Jared's first big gallery show. The one that snagged him a write-up in the village voice that caught the attention of collectors as far away as Amsterdam and Berlin. People with money to spend on art. There were photographs of Lucretia in that show too, of her and Benny together. But she couldn't look at those anymore. Jared had posed them together, the twins as inverted mirrors, dressed in restraining costumes that recklessly, elegantly swapped their genders back and forth, that rendered them even more interchangeable than the work of their genes. By the end of the first shoot, eight hours on nothing but cigarettes and bottled water, Lucrish was nauseous, dizzy, and less certain of her tenuous identity than she'd been in years. She started crying, and Benny held her until the world bled slowly into focus again. I don't like Jared as a person, and I don't like Benny either. A lot of that gender play is very cool and interesting, and if, if everybody is on board, but Lucrece seems like someone who is very much a binary trans woman who is, I think, I, I think on some level feels guilty that she has this identity separate from her brother. Yeah, because, like, I don't like Benny. He doesn't have any distinct identity in the narrative at all. He really doesn't. He, he seems like a fucking cinder block. He is this thing that our two existing characters miss and is kind of around while shitty things happen to the character we like. Or he does shitty things. Mm. Because one of the things that he does is specifically try to use her as bait. Like, he clearly tries to bait chasers by using his sister. Which makes the twist that it was that uh, the serial killer was trying to kill Lucris and kills Benny by accident. Much, much darker. Uh-huh. Be- but I think that's sort of the inherent misogyny that creeps into a lot of Martin's work is the idea that she should feel guilty because how dare she be alive? I mean, there, it's when a guy could have been alive. In a lot of ways, this book has advanced a lot from Lost Souls. I feel like it's got it's more focused in what it wants to say. And I feel like it may be partly because of the editorial mandates. The writing's a lot snappier. But there is still definitely that wafting, unresolved, closeted trans guy misogyny. Yeah, and and just sort of a loathing or a bafflement with the Yannick. There's a very odd scene where it it seems to imply that Lucrece is experiencing penis envy post-transition. It's an incest scene. Yeah. (sighs) Because Martin is once again returning to the well of all twins are incestuous, obviously. That was in Lost Souls too. Yep. And it feels like the incest, as near as I can tell, functionally, taking away for the shock factor, is so that they will have something to use as a gotcha for Lucrece when she goes on the stand at Jared's trial, as though her being a trans woman would not be enough for them for the prosecution to drag her through the mud. Right. It feels weirdly similar to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which is not a good movie. 
John Cusack travels to the South and encounters the odd people of New Orleans whilst uh, doing a journalistic endeavor on uh, Kevin Spacey, who murdered his gardener-slash-boy toy, Jude Law. Uh-huh. And gosh golly. It's unnecessary, and it provides this wrinkle as though there's... Almost as though the narrative th- doesn't understand a reason why Lucrece would, would miss these two men so much if she's not interested in fucking in them. And we we specifically have the scene where Jared meets them and they're dressed in steampunk costumes, but it's not called steampunk yet. It's very cute. They invented steampunk. It's adorable. It's like William Gibson, but Victorian. And I'm like, yeah, you invented steampunk. Goss, you found the color brown. <laughs> it's very cute. And then they take him home and proposition him. And do this weird sex play thing where they're like, you want to fuck me and my sister? No, I just want to fuck you. What about the fact that my sister used to have a dick and she looks super mad about it? Mm-hmm. Like she did not want that disclosed. Because Benny sucks and I hate uh, him. But Benny's like totally comfortable offering information that she's not comfortable offering. Mm-hmm. And then she watches them fuck. It keeps trying to offer this subtext that she is, in fact, in love with Jared, but it's never to be. But she's so envious and she's, like, resentful that Benny didn't transition to, that they're not a matched set anymore or something. But also that Benny is a coward who for not transitioning with her. It's confused. It's very confused. And you pointed out this very gendered sense of how the characters are portrayed of men as actors and women as sort of long-suffering witnesses. I mean, I feel like it's the Steel Magnolias situation. It's this very Southern perception of femininity. But yes, I feel like there's a gendered apportionment of men get to act and make decisions and, and be active and decisive. Whereas the defining trait of femininity in this book is being able to bear up through suffering and survive. And the weird implication with Lucrish is that she blurs gender binaries. Which would be something if she weren't so upset about that blurring. Yeah. She's not interested in blurring those binaries. She's interested in being a woman. She's she's not non-binary. Mm-hmm. So this very binary notion of gender reflects weirdly. It's yet another case of there are so many interesting ideas in this book that just don't match up together. But also it's an inherently misogynistic idea that it is the lot of the woman to suffer. But that goes along with also how Lucrece is portrayed in very subtle ways, like her voice. Mm -hmm. Where her voice is frequently described as low or as breaking anytime she has an emotion. Mm -hmm. Where I'm a cis woman, generally speaking. You can describe my voice as a low voice, fairly neutrally. My voice is low. And it travels all over the scale. But unfortunately, that's not, that that is a loaded way to describe the voice of a trans woman, especially when you associate it with her losing control and moving from a passive to an active role when you have specifically matched the active role to the positionality of masculinity then you're saying her man side is coming out and 
Mm-hmm. And that what that's what makes her powerful. There's also just the fact that as much as this book keeps mentioning how much Frank's co- lesbian co-workers, we have two in this book. Uh, they're both the woman who has to retire and nearly bleeds out. And also the coroner, not the coroner, the uh, medical examiner. Yeah, they're just powering through their jobs, apparently, despite this br- workplace brutality day to day. But we never really get any insight into who they are. No, it's just that, like, they're dealing with it. They are also both non-white. Well, and it's also just sort of weirdly implying that they're stupid for trying. But, like, being a medical examiner is a fascinating and powerful job. It's an important job. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to know more about that that, uh, medical examiner character, honestly. Yeah. That's something I seriously considered going into as as a profession. I took some classes that involved, like, cadaver examination and stuff and i was good at it but i realized that i was not cut out for lab work at all and the fact that i thought i wanted to investigate things was actually that i wanted to figure things out and that's why an english major was better for me but like that is a woman heavy profession and it's very frustrating to see it portrayed as like this this situation where (laughs) take this job and suck it without nuance Right, without really digging into this sort of all cops or bastards feeling that's floating in the air, but then never really gets interrogated. I really wish she had showed up and examined the crime scene mm-hmm. after literally the entire cast dies. Right, then we would have had somebody to... That would have been, like, the idea of, like, a spark carry forward. Right. Like, like a communal good, like her getting to make choices in the documentation of the crime scene. Right, like the, because that's so important. Right, the postmortem gendering of trans people is such a even now such a loaded topic. Yeah, and just just the positioning of the crime scene and and the way investigations happen going forward. But no, she's just there in one scene and then gone. Yep. You know, you want to say, well, this is like a two hundred ninety page novel. It's not a lot of room for that many side characters. But you except know, except it doesn't start until halfway fucking through. Yep, and also there's an in, that entire plot cul-de-sac with the guy who arrested uh, Jared's partner who ends up committing suicide. Trigger warning for suicide. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, because, because of the trauma of a crime scene. <sighs> we had time to do that, but we don't have time to talk to this lesbian medical examiner in our book about oppression of the queer community you, you said this felt very stephen kingy yeah very much because he also can't write an ending to save his fucking life uh but so he just keeps writing well he he writes his books often also uh the larger the cast the more likely that they're going to start super late in because he also loves to just hang around with a character and sort of sink into the morass of their thoughts and and he, use the, use that to build the atmosphere of corruption of this town mm-hmm. yeah king is an author who's really known for his specificity like people will people have pointed out the fact that he uses brand names yeah, for pa- they're panasonic uh-huh <laughs> yeah like the stupid mundane brand things that lets him build uncanniness in his work and you can really t- see Martin picking up on that in how he writes these characters who are very interesting sketches, but they do not a novel make. 
it, it, it feels weirdly padded in the front half and then the back half happens where suddenly after whining for 150 pages, no joke, mm-hmm. Jared suddenly wanders off to commit some murders that are not connected to what he's actually supposed to be doing. But he co- calls the crow a bitch a lot and doesn't listen to it. Because he sucks. Um, because the crow is a lady crow. Martin wrote the experience of bringing Jared back to life as, like, the pain of birth. And then for some reason, the crow is just a bubble-headed dimwit. Just forgot the important stuff. Don't worry, the big enormo crow that helps Lucrece is a dude crow. Uh-huh. He literally calls the crow a bitch. Mm-hmm. Like, rude. This is why you're walking around. It doesn't square with with Eric's crowness, because that's, Lucrez gets the full invulnerability. I did mm-hmm. really like that, the fact that Jared sucks so much that he's basically falling apart. I love when he gets shot in the face. Not because I hate him. Like, I do hate him, and I hate Benny, but, like, that's not why I love when he gets shot in the face. There's just a really good description of how the back of his head is just hanging off. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't die, but also he's not regenerating after he gets injured, so he keeps having to, like, patch himself up together. I mean, Eric had to patch himself up, too. That's why the electrical tape around the abdomen and stuff. Mm. Like, Eric was a walking corpse. Fair enough. I've only seen that movie once. <laughs> but w- the fact that he gets his head blown off and then has to put on a, a, a leather a, a hood. A mask. Because uh-huh. Maplethorpe. Because Maplethorpe. And that is just talking, having this very important meeting through that. It's not actually clear whether they were actually into any BDSM stuff or if these were just photography props. Right, if they were just putting out edgelord professional work. Edgelord professional work based on Lucretia's theories about gender performance. Yeah. Which bothered me. Yeah, which he does not get credited for in his exhibitions. Yeah, because he specifically was like just a dumbass landscape photographer until he met Benny and Lucrish. And then Lucrish like explained some ideas about photography of the dead and theory and and respect for the subject. And then suddenly he got super famous. But she's the model. She's not. Benny's his main model. Except that she's also his main model because he uses them interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's the best character and this book kind of treats her like shit despite giving her the triumphant moment at the end. Like, it's very weird that that he made all this money off essentially harvesting her ideas. Like, it's not weird in the real world, but it, it makes me better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say that's very realistic and I suppose it would be something except I fully, I honestly expected her to live. I really did. Yeah. Like, you can't have the cool crow moment if she lives, but I really expected her to be the survivor, except that the book never sets up a reason for her to want to live outside of these two dudes. Is there anything we didn't cover? Oh, the rape. Right. So right before stringing her up and gutting her, um, which sets her up to become the crow, Jordan uh, uh, rapes Lucrece while she's unconscious. And it's a weird, weird authorial move. Mm-hmm. And I find it really gross and frustrating because the way it's handled is almost as a humiliation for Jordan as, ho, ho, you were just a chaser all along. 
it's never remarked upon and in no way affects the crèche, mm-hmm. which makes it, to me, inherently gratuitous. Because we could tell that the reason he was doing this was because of his feelings towards trans people. Mm-hmm. Like, that's obvious. We didn't need him to commit a rape of a trans woman in order to, to really drive that. that home. Yeah. It's artless. Like, it's not just shock, you know, it's not just shocking or tacky or grotesque or whatever. It's artless in how the book is written because any person who would be reading this book has surely picked up the vibes. Yeah. It's gross and. And really bothersome for me. I did like the image when when she becomes the crow, though, because she has a starification mark on her back of a crow. So she goes to the Tree of Crows in the afterlife and demands that they give her special passage back to reality. Because she talked to a guy that was basically a carbon fucking copy of the spooky dudes with the apothecary shop in... Uh, in Lost Souls, let's face it. Yeah. And they gave her that clue. And she comes back and, like, all of her disembodied organs turn into an organ tornado and go back into her torso. And it's it's so amazing. Good. Well, and even metaphorically, it's good because she talks so often about, like, feeling fucking stupid penis envy bullshit aside. Like, she talks it's about... It's really weird. Because, no, she doesn't have penis envy. She... But she does have this... It's been removed. Uh She didn't want it. But she does have this sense of loss of now she has something that is concretely different from her twin. Yeah. And it's like she is... Once she does this, she feels whole. And that's neat. Yeah. Their backstory is stupid, by the way. They they grew up in a, a crumbling mansion, as you might have expected. Of course. And then their mentally ill matriarch died and they burned it down. So it's never to be separated. And faked their deaths At the age of 16, and then they, I guess, unfaked their deaths. That whole section is uh, presented with dead name and wrong pronouns. Yep. But, like, it's such a great moment. But I hate that that the way we had to get there was for her to be violated and murdered and hung upside down and for us to have a reference to the fact that somebody came in and saw her body and couldn't tell whether it was where the brutality was so great that they couldn't tell whether it was a man or a woman mm-hmm. like the Im- like the 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 ambiguity of gender happens in the moment of death and violence like this is a book inherently about the trauma inflicted on the queer and trans community but it it's it enjoys that trauma too much on the way to its triumph you know yeah that it feels lurid rather than vengeful which i feel like is the whole purpose of a crow story yeah like this the murder scene in the crow is quick and brutal and horrible for multiple reasons but Uh, for multiple very bad reasons Uh uh-huh yes i mean for multiple very bad real world reasons but like as a work of art after the fact yeah it doesn't wallow in it if you're not aware that the scene in the crow is shot in the way it is because it's made of like pickup shots that happened after brandon lee actually died during shooting it it's kind of like jaws where the mechanical failures of something on set determined the artistic expression afterwards mm-hmm. but more tragic by a lot by a lot but and there's not 
it gets so lost in itself. And and I can even attribute it the the good intention of wanting a theoretical straight cis reader to, you know, you're gonna look at it. But and it frustrates me because the centering ethos and and driving emotion of the crow is supposed to be pain and working through it and like moving through pain but we never we never really feel jared's pain Mm -hmm. he just seems pissy and shitty the whole time lucrece's pain we we believe in honor throughout the whole book but she's not afforded the central position until the last minute when she swoops in and fixes the situation Mm -hmm. yeah to preserve the twist the book couches so hard on on forcing her to to be as passive as possible and except when she's trying to yell at jared to knock that stupid shit off yeah and it does unfortunately feel like it's being positioned as the crow is a masculine position and the only reason she's able to move into that position is because of the inherent ambiguity of her gender. It's the same unintentional implication that tripped up bit at the last minute. Yeah. Which, I don't know, it's an interesting book and I do feel like Bright, like, like Martin has moved forward a lot in his writing by this point in his career. He's 31 now. I think, honestly, if you wanted to read some of his 90s work, I would recommend this over Lost Souls. It's particularly interesting as a work that's engaging with a formula. Mm-hmm. Because, like, it's a creative author engaging with something that clearly had a formula. Like, you have to have a cop in it. You have to have an, a downtrodden member of society and some sort of criminal enterprise that's still operating after their death. Mm-hmm. They have to engage in multiple acts of revenge that stretch farther than just the direct cause of their death. Like, there's an interesting idea there if, of how he's sort of subverting the expectations of the Crow formula. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how it, like, the, the intentions versus the effect. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's a fast enough little read. There are some really good individual scenes. Yeah, it it's just frustrating because the things it does right are done very right, and there are so many other things that are so close to working. And then you get to stuff like the transphobia and the sort of lurid depiction of Lucrece's suffering, or. Frank going into that crime scene and just the incredibly abjecting depictions of an impoverished black community and just oh infant death yeah yeah we didn't talk about it but if you want to put, read this book graphic infant death the, the crime scene where Frank's partner is shot has this infant death that is treated as both super bad and weirdly casual by the black community in which it's occurring. Mm-hmm. Because the baby has been thrown out the window and was dead and then somebody ran over it with a car and just didn't stop. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Who does that? Uh, yeah. I forgot that should be a separate trigger warning. Yeah. They all melt together <laughs> so yeah. much. Because this is like a work of transgressive fiction. Which too often with 
white writers ends up being like, no, we're depicting these marginalized communities we're not a part of. We're, we're showing their pain and how much it sucks for them. Okay, but mostly you're just kind of replicating the bad shit for your for your protagonist to move through. Oh, like tourism. Ooh. But I'd still recommend it over over Lost Souls because there's a reason Martin became a the influential writer that he is. And someday we're going to reach one of his books where he fully evolved as a writer and worked out all his shit. I mean, I would be open to reading some of his, his later mysteries. Mm. I would be interested in that. But at this point, I feel like the reason Martin became as influential as he was is because of all of the shit we've talked about. Like, I've said this before, but I truly believe one of the reasons Martin was considered, like, an influential up-and-comer in the 90s is because he was being perceived as a girl who can write misogyny the way the boys do. I honestly, truly believe that that gave him cachet in the horror community because it was validating to all of the men who wrote violent misogynistic horror as a depiction of reality because they think if someone they think is a woman is writing this way then they're right all along and all those other women are just too soft i was realistic and and most of these women can't really face it so i think there was a gendered component to it yep yeah it might be nice to look at some of his later stuff at some point because he's a good and vivid writer like on a technical level and i would like to see some stuff that was written like when he was not working through aggressively doing whatever the fuck this is but you know what i'm glad that we read it yeah like it it was a worthwhile experience for us at least yeah yeah because it it really does sort of show this interesting sort of growth moment Mm -hmm. i know i would have if i had found this as a teenager i would have snapped this shit up Uh uh-huh it's like trans people exist Uh uh-huh for for the average reader i don't know it might be really triggering and not worth it for that but if it's not going to be triggering for you, and you're interested in gay shit and goth shit and crow stuff, maybe? Interesting? Maybe. Yeah. Hey there, listeners. Dorothy here. Sorry to break in like this. I realize it's highly atypical. The fact is that after we recorded this, I totally by chance discovered some really interesting information relating to this book, and I just desperately wanted to share it with you. So I hope you'll forgive me. You see, I uh, follow a Tumblr that posts information about and images from Propaganda Magazine, a goth periodical that ran from 1982 to 2002 in the U.S. It was edited by photographer Fred H. Berger and was pretty influential in the goth scene in the U.S. They published a lot of book and music reviews, stuff about goth culture, queerness, kink culture, and also a lot of uh, goth-inspired photo shoots with various models like John Kobiak. And those photo shoots are definitely of interest to people like me. They did a lot of Vampire Chronicles-related stuff, things like that, that were essentially fan shoots. They also heavily promoted a lot of uh, Bright's work. The Spring 95 edition had an analysis of the themes in Lost Souls and Drawing Blood, And you can find ads for Bright's work within the pages of the copies that are posted to archive.org, which are incomplete, sadly. 
the reason I'm sad we don't have the full run is Propaganda Magazine's Tumblr on August 15th posted a couple of photos with information about one of Fred Berger's models. And I'm going to begin quoting here, but not in its entirety. So, Of all the many beautiful and intriguing propaganda magazine models, my favorite was Brooks, a non-binary chameleon who was perceived by the readership as several different models. Now, according to this post, uh, Brooks, whose name was spelled differently and sometimes omitted entirely when posing in character, didn't develop as strong of a reader following as uh, Koviak or Giles because they were perceived to be multiple people posing because their gender presentation and everything perceived by readers to be multiple people. This post talks a little bit about a few of the different roles that Brooks took, including having appeared as everything from the Russian junkie hustler Dmitri to the trans woman fetish model Lucrece, which I found incredible. It's paired with photos from 1999, but unfortunately, when I looked through the archive.org information, I couldn't find any photos of the Lucrece photo shoot that's mentioned here. Which is frustrating because I was trying to find out whether this shoot occurred before or after the book came out. Because I'm curious whether whether Martin was absorbing a bit of goth culture into his own work or whether it was a fan shoot that occurred after. The only um, issue I can find that's near to the publication of this book was the Winter 98 issue, which does have a lot of information about... Bright, but it's focused, it's in an article focused on his book, uh, Exquisite Corpse. And I do want to warn anybody who seeks that out that it's deeply Asian fetishy, the, the article called The Poppy and the Lotus, and it's engaging in a lot of fetishism of the victimization of queer Asian boys. And it's just written in a register that's very, every possible Asian cliche is there. At this point, Bright was already identifying as a gay man, quote-unquote, who happened to be born in the body of a woman. That's how he's described in this article. And there are some photos of Brooks, but it's a photo shoot where they're portraying a character named Johnny. There is no mention of the crow, the Lazarus heart, possibly because it's something that was perceived as more of a commercial effort rather than an authentically goth work. I'm not sure. Either way, there's not promotion of it uh, happening there, even though that would have been at exactly the right time to promote it. I don't know whether this was a case of the magazine doing a fan shoot of the character of Lucrece after, or whether this is a character that had already appeared in the magazine and Martin decided to absorb it. But either way, it's just too fascinating not to tell you guys about uh, research I was able to do without access to physical libraries and without making a Facebook account to specifically contact Berger, which I considered and I might do at some point. By emailing trash tre- and treasures pod at gmail.com. We love to get mail. And you can also find us on social media. We are on Tumblr at trash and treasures pod.tumblr.com and we are on Twitter at trash pod. Shout out this time to at Silva, uh, sorry, at Silmerto, because I'm just giddy every time somebody likes the Yu-Gi-Oh episode, what we did. (laughs) 
Also, if you want to find us individually on Twitter, uh, Dorothy is at Dorothy Not Gale, and I am at Writer Vry. I think that wraps us up for this time. I think it does. I think we went a little long this time, but I'm proud of it. Eh, it'll work out fine by the time I do the edits. Next time will be another commission episode, by the way. Ooh, exciting. Yes. Exciting is a word for it. We will be doing it with <laughs> yeah. joy in our hearts. Not not next time chronologically, but next book club. Yes. So look forward to that. I'm going to keep that title a surprise because I'm um, keeping the internet off our backs. But very excited to talk about it, Chelsea. <laughs> All right. And until next time, take care of yourselves out there. See y'all.